This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, bro? Always get a little boost when I hear your introduction. Yeah, man. I see it in you. you I see have it. people remind you of who you are. That's your first Come lesson on, on this episode of Pass the Mic. Come on. We have done part one of the 2019 Cultural Artifacts, and now we got part two. We have some heaters. Were you surprised by anything on my list? I'm always surprised by your list. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler has this mind that 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 just comes out of left field, right? He doesn't have to bend his mind in a particular direction like the rest of us. He sees the don't world even, differently, which that. is why he's a great co-host. So, don't yeah. even do that, man. Anyway, I think we should get right into it. We got five more things. Okay, can you read off your first four items on your 2019 cultural artifacts list. Yes. So last episode, I talked about the Christianity Today article saying that Trump should be removed from office. I talked about the 1619 Project, a uh, a literary project looking at 1619 as a new or different starting point for this United States project. I talked about the film, the docuseries, When They See Us, about the Central Park Five, now the Exonerated Five. And I talked about the unparalleled black girl magic and athletic brilliance of Simone Biles. Very good. And my list was also the TV series When They See Us on Netflix, the worship album Hear Us from Heaven from All Nations Worship Assembly in Atlanta, the book God in the Ghetto by William A. Jones Jr., and the person Anand Girdadis as well. So that was my four. I'll let you start us off. I, I, I have a... I have a feeling you got a heater, something that's going to mess me up. You let it slip (laughs) when we pause the recording. What you got? What's number five? What's number five, Number five cultural artifact of 2019 for me is Kanye West's Jesus is King album. (sighs) This was not only a cultural moment, but it, it also sort of rocked the Christian world as well, because here you have Kanye West an incredible, just genius in in the musical biz, highly accomplished, but highly secular. Um, you listen to his music, he is not trying to make a point uh, about uh, holiness or, you know, biblical values or anything like that until he undergoes this dramatic conversion. And for a long time, the conversation was, is this authentic? You know, what kind of Christianity? You, Tyler, wrote an incredible article about this. I feel like you're trolling me right now. (laughs) No, it was a great article. No, but I feel like you're trolling me with this Kanye, bro. Oh, man. No, look. (laughs) I think what has happened since the album came out only validates what you were saying in that article. Go check it out. It's in the Washington Post. Just search Tyler Barnes, Washington Post. Anyway, when the album came out called Jesus is King, it, 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 did he bill it 
explicitly as a gospel album. He definitely built it yes. explicitly as a Christian album. And so it was this cultural moment because what I thought, and I talked about this on footnotes, was your reaction to the Jesus is King album was a lot more than about the music. Mm-hmm. It was a lot more yeah. than about whether you liked how it sounded or not. Mm-hmm. It was really a referendum on what you think about Christianity or the brand of Christianity mm-hmm. that Kanye is bringing to the table. So in all the commentary I saw, which was not only from Christians, but but non-Christians alike, it was critiquing the album. Some liked it, some hated it, but you couldn't disentangle it from what you thought about religion. So it's just hmm, massive, right? Yeah. That's very so it was more like a revelatory force. It was basically a great revealer of kind of this subtext argument and conversation within Christianity. Within and beyond. Okay. Right? So 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 how you are if if you don't call yourself a Christian, how you're viewing Christianity hmm. in the twenty first century. Okay. And again, a lot of that's wrapped up in the in 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 your interpretation of the brand of Christianity that Kanye is bringing. Who's it for? Mm-hmm. Who does it amp? Who's he learning from? Who does it support? All those things. That's really interesting. Okay, I I think I can go with that. Okay, I'll go with that. I mean, <laughs> I you didn't know think it was going to be controversial. What you mean? You didn't think it was going to be controversial? As a cultural artifact, like yeah, oh, it's like man. a no brainer for a cultural artifact. Uh yeah, it's not on my list, unfortunately. Uh, not on my honorable mentions. Uh, but I can understand where you are coming from. Because my approach to this list this year is what are the things that just cause, cause massive ripples? Okay. So it's not necessarily, oh, this affected Jamar in a particular way. Okay. Bet, bet. Much less a positive way. It's just like, these are the things that we're looking back at like landmarks in this year. Hmm. Okay. I can, I, can, I can dig it. I can dig it. All right. My number five here. Um, normally, I try to include one of every style of cultural artifact that we have. So this includes at least one album, at least one movie, at least one television show, at least one book, and also, as the past couple of years have shown, at least one comic book as well. So Here this is going to be really interesting because there is one particular group of comic book characters that I have not liked. And, and our producer, Bo York, he knows that we've had this extended conversation about all of, you know, my dislike for this group of comic book characters. And it's not that I dislike them. And of course, I'm talking about the X-Men here. It's not that I dislike the X-Men. It's that I dislike the stories about the X-Men. And not to say that they don't have merit or artistic value. It's just something about the stories that I can't get past. And it's that I would always like one particular character more than the others, want to hear more from that particular character. And then right at the the time when I'm getting really close to like diving in and really learning more about them, they would always switch back to Wolverine or, you know, Storm or whatever it may be. You know, some of these popular characters that would kind of revert to sell comic books. But there is a comic that came out. It's my number five. It came out this year that made me fall in love with the X-Men and it is called House of X. There's also a, a secondary series as well called Powers of X, which I have not had the chance to read yet. But House of X is six issues and it is a brilliant reboot and subversion of everything that you think about the X-Men. And one of the things that I really appreciated about it, not just basically reinterpreting the origin story of how the X-Men came to be, but also the fact that it takes these obscure characters and brings them to the forefront and makes them extremely important. And some of the characters that you're very familiar with as it relates to the X-Men 
most of those characters actually aren't as important as you think they will be and also aren't as powerful as you think they will be. Hmm. And so I don't want to get into the <laughs> spoilers of everything, but basically the premise of, of the book is that the X-Men create their own nation called Krakoa. And so they create their own nation. That sounds familiar. No, I don't. I don't know. I feel, I don't like, know. I feel like I've heard it before. I'm trying it's, to it's just find it's an entryway. I haven't read comics faithfully since I was a teenager, but it sounds fascinating. You're making me want to. And the last time you talked about comics uh, for cultural artifacts last year, I went out and bought the series. I actually haven't oh, read it okay, yet. Bet. <laughs> oh, I, I was like, I was about to ask you what you thought. <laughs> anyway, so the, they they create their own nation, and the the way that they create their own nation. It's kind of a spoiler, so I'm going to leave that alone. But they basically make themselves a player on the world stage. Hmm. Hmm. And they basically, instead of trying to fit in to the culture, instead of trying to fit in with the majority, they say, now we want, if you don't accept our terms, we won't accept you. Which is a totally different power stance. They right? building their own tables. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so see, that's why. Okay. I it. Now, there's always a black tie-in. There was one particular panel within the comic book, I believe, it was issue two, where one of the X Men, one of the mutants, is talking to another mutant, and the mutant is saying, the mutant that is basically um, under duress, we'll say, is basically saying, "We can reason with the humans. We can reason with them." And then the other mutant looks at her and says. Do you realize how much they hate us? And I remember reading that. And the way it's set up, it's very dramatic. And so when she says that, I sat back and I said, oh, wow. You know, (laughs) that's one of those panels that really affects you, sticks in your mind. So House of X is six issues. And also, I always like this. Whenever I like a, a comic book this much to put it on the cultural artifacts list, it's always beautiful. Mm. It is a beautifully Mm. drawn beautifully illustrated comic i absolutely love the art so house of x is my number five my goodness well here's an that's another series i gotta go out and get yes um my number six i think the next yeah Yeah. uh, mine is highly political um okay in general because as i look back at 2019 it was a highly political year especially at the national level so the Mueller report remember that that was no, I don't. <laughs> the Mueller report <laughs> makes my cultural artifacts list because for the better part of two years, we were waiting for this official investigation and the official report about Trump's possible collusion with Russia. Mm-hmm. Hints came out early on in his presidency, really even before some of these things were happening, uh, before the election. And the Mueller report was the official investigation. And for so long, a lot of people put all of their eggs in this basket, right? Mm-hmm. Like if we were going to get rid of this president, if he is as corrupt as it looks like he is, then the Mueller report would would flesh all that out. Right, right. So it comes out in early 2019 mm-hmm. to all of this uproar, right? To all of this anticipation. And it's this... It's multi-hundred page report yeah. that very few Have people... Have you read it yet? You read it? I've read... I've read a hundred something pages. Okay, so that's why you ain't reading them comic books, because you're reading the Mueller report. That boy uh, about the movie. It's a slog, man. Um, that boy really about the movement. He I'm, read the he read the Mueller report. I, I read I read I read the first hundred pages or so, highlights, um, you know, skimming through the rest, and then every sort of 
news article I could find. Wow. And basically, um, it, it is so partisan that it depends on your side. It depends on your perspective. So Republicans are saying it's a quote-unquote nothing burger, right? right. Like uh, Trump himself said, you know, this exonerates him. Um, and then Democrats and people who want Trump out of office saying, uh, you know, the ultimate conclusion of the report is that if um, if he was found innocent of, of all charges or wrongdoing, it would have said so. Instead, mm. a lot of people looked at the Mueller report as leaving the door open for impeachment and that investigators went supposedly as far as they could in this document hmm. to saying that. So it was just a massive event because for so long that had been the event, the milestone of whether Trump would stay in office or not. And then it ended up being not that. Not that it wasn't important, mm. but it wasn't the deciding thing. Mm. And so, you know, that that leads to, you know, where we are presently in 2020 looking at all these kinds of things. So I just thought it was a, a massive um, kind of cultural artifact, uh, a huge point in this presidency and in modern U.S. politics. So as you think about the Mueller report, were you one of those people who were kind of expecting it to be this smoking gun that we were going to catch him red-handed and then he was going to have to be, you know, impeached and removed from office. I didn't really, but even if it was, my thought was would it matter? Yeah, yeah. Right? Like like the way this 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 um Republican elected officials are acting especially in Congress, like would they hold him accountable right. even if there was a smoking gun? Right. Um, you know, and the frustration from a lot of people is that Mueller wouldn't wouldn't take a more forceful stance, like, yes, you should impeach. And he's saying, No, that's not my job. This is up to con I've presented the evidence. Congress needs to take it from here. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, the way as we interact with racism, this idea that there's you know, the only way you can prove it is if someone's actually caught red-handed right, in the that's act. Right, that's right. With indisputable footage. And it's like, well, you know, that's that's the way our discourse is. I think the Mueller Report did say a lot about the way, how partisan we are, how partisan our discourse is. No doubt. But then even beyond that, I think also how we engage with opposing viewpoints mm. and how different things are interpreted. You know, you even think about the Covington situation, right? Like it's it's almost like this Rorschach test of like, you know, how do yeah. you how you view it really like Absolutely. we were talking about Jesus is King. It's just based upon where you come from politically. That's that's fascinating. Okay, so my number six is um again, I'm just I'm so pop culture. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I got my the politics, six, you got the pop culture. Yeah, we got yeah, it all. It's covered. a good mix. It's a good mix. <laughs> my number six, I'm really excited about. It is yeah, I think I can say it. it's the best film I've seen all year. And that is Parasite. What? Yes. Parasite is the best film I've seen all year. It's a Korean film uh, directed by Bong Joon-ho. Avengers Endgame came out in 2019, right? It's way better than Avengers Endgame. Wow. I think I have probably like six or seven films that I would, I would take over Avengers Endgame. Okay. Um, <laughs> and and the, thing about, the thing about Avengers, and not to really go down that rabbit, rabbit trail, is it's not on my list. But the thing about Avengers is, is it's really hard to get amped up for a movie. That for that movie to come and then to maintain that same energy about the movie that you had in the buildup, right? So it's like, it's almost like this release of pressure. So you're like, okay, all, you know, 20 of these movies, they're done. It's like the end of the arc. And it's like, oh, 
So you kind of leave it, right? And you don't really come back around to it and think about it or dwell oh, on it. Oh, I got you. It's done. Yeah. Like we There's we had our podcast on it. Yeah. it. We had our episode, you know, Once Upon a Time in Wakanda. And we we talked about it and it's over. Got you it. know, and now now that chapter's kind of closed. Uh, but Parasite, it is a phenomenal film about class, um, about economics, and it's 100% foreign language. So it's subtitles, um, which I absolutely love. I felt like it was more authentic, more real. Premise is that there's this family who basically lives in the slums in this particular city, and they get the opportunity to be introduced to a family that lives in probably the wealthiest part of, of town, the wealthiest part of that that region. And so the interaction with them is class-based, but they're doing work for them, but there's a twist. And so I won't reveal the twist, obviously, but there's a twist and it asks some phenomenal questions about what we aspire to. Hmm. It asks some great questions about what success actually looks like, but then it also portrays each of the families and you know, eventually there's some adversarial element here. It portrays each of the families, each of the characters as kind of multidimensional characters. So they're not just all good, all bad. Yeah. You know, they have layers to them. Yeah. So they have human emotions, human perspectives, but at the same time, there is a core divide on who they are. And slowly it reveals itself. I I, I think it's a brilliant film. I if if it were up to me, it would win Best Picture. It's nominated for it. Okay, yeah. I, hope, I really, really, really hope it wins, but the likelihood of that is is pretty low. But but I think Parasite is is a movie that everybody should see. And also kind of the, the father-son dynamics. There was a lot of father-son, a lot of parent-child stuff um, that moved me as well. So yeah, Parasite, which is something everybody should go see. Everyone should see. It's really interesting because usually when media film whatever portrays the poor it's always the virtuous poor right like they're they're nothing but good and you know the reality is if you're resisting oppression that is righteous right Mm -hmm. yeah but at the same time you're a human being and we know there's no one righteous not even one right and so to be able to talk about those class issues and the struggles that the poor have but still make them human and not these sort of two-dimensional heroic figures yes that's that's really interesting and and that's the interesting thing is the the poor family i don't think i would consider them heroes Mm. i i just humans Mm. i don't think i would consider them heroes like i'm thinking back on some of the decisions that were made and then some of the ultimate consequences of that and i'm thinking a lot of stuff is not heroic right right but at the same time you can see the level of inequity yes and there's one particular scene where a character, a young man, looks down at his feet, um, and I'm I'm not gonna say what was happening at that moment, um, but he looks down at his feet, and there was this haunting realization of this is what inequity looks like. Mm. This is what it means to be poor. Yeah, this is what it means to be in the lower class, and the way it was shot, and the way like the shock on his face and the realization on his face, um, that was very haunting. It was haunting. Yeah. And I, I really enjoy oh man. Bang Jun Ho. Oh man. You got it. You guys got to see. You're like, what's this what's a film I should see? You're gonna see the Oscars and they're gonna talk about all these other films. I'm telling you the film you need to see first. Number one is Parasite. Whenever it comes out on streaming, get that, do that. 
I'm telling you. You heard it here, folks. The unequivocal. Unequivocal. Five-star recommendation there's from no, Tyler There's Burns. no question. It's the best film of the year. Okay, anyway, go ahead. Number seven. <laughs> All right. So. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. My next one is a blend of the political and the religious, okay. and it is the Poor People's Campaign. Yes, yes. That's really good. Yeah, led by folks like Reverend William J. Barber, Liz Theo Harris, our good friend Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, yes. and so many other people at the grassroots level who are organizing this. Obviously, the name Poor People's Campaign is taking up the campaign that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was involved in and leading when he was assassinated, what brought him to Memphis, and mm-hmm. basically saying, um, you know, in order to address the these all of these ills in society, including racism, we also have to talk about poverty. Mm-hmm. And so he was leading a poor people's campaign. That got cut short when his life got cut short. But Folks in the modern day poor people's campaign have taken up that charge and want to make poverty alleviation and justice around wealth more broadly Mm -hmm. a centerpiece of justice work today. And the reason why it makes my cultural artifacts list is because I think they've started a conversation. And it goes far beyond justice to the poor, as important that as that is. What is brought into the conversation is the progressive or the liberal religious yeah, left. The religious left, yes. yes. So so this is critically important as we talk about white evangelicalism, which has been the constant topic of conversation as far as religion, or at least Christianity, in terms of politics. For so long, in terms of headlines, it's been all about white evangelical support mm-hmm. for Trump. But mm-hmm. what the Poor People's Campaign has done, because it's led by people of faith, because it's... it's um, building off of the legacy of folks like Dr. King and others, it is a faith-based movement in so many ways. And so it brings into the conversation a different kind of Christian, a different kind Mm -hmm. of way to approach Christianity and society and politics and justice. Mm. And it's not a one-to-one thing, right? Like, it's really crucial to understand that the religious left is not the equal and opposite of the religious Mm. right. I think they arose in very different contexts, and I think they stand for very different things. Also, the religious left is not trying to sort of co-opt political power in the same way that the religious right is doing. Right. So it would be wrong, in my mind, to to equivocate, uh, equivocate, yeah. equivocate, or um, make them equivalent as as you know, just two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Nevertheless, it starts a discussion here mm. about you know. There are different ways to be Christian. You can talk all you want about the effectiveness of it or the longevity of it, but it's critical right now, especially in this election cycle. Yeah, it reminds me of the book that's coming out later this year, I believe, uh, by the reporter Jack Jenkins, American Prophets, you know, on the religious left, which I think- Shout out to Jack Jenkins, incredible religion reporter. Yeah, which is, I'm really excited to hear him kind of concretize some of these concepts and tell the story. I think, you know, we we are so familiar with the more majority side of things, 
you know, we're so familiar with the religious right that hearing about the religious left and learning from my friends like Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, who's been on the show, um, even talking about Ann Atwater and, you know, Fannie Lou mm-hmm. Hamer and, and other people who kind of more align themselves with this stream of thought is, is so fascinating. I'm glad you brought it up. That's something I never would have thought of. So I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. Are we ready for number seven? Let's do it. Getting down to the wire. Um, man, I'm going to stay in the movies. And this was a late addition, but I think it's worth adding. And I think it kind of, we flew past it. Okay. And that's the movie Us. Okay. I think we flew past it. Jordan Peele. We flew past it because it wasn't Get Out. Yeah. And because it wasn't as neat and and tidy and self-evident. Uh, this this sounds like your kind of movie. Okay. As as get out. And I have I my I have did. my reflections on it. Yes, go ahead. You know, I even did. I even I had some critiques. Uh-huh. Right. But I think the relevance of the message and I think the style of film that it was does great service to black filmmaking, great service to black art. First of all, we have to talk about the fact that the trailer did the Dog. exact same thing that Get Out did which was kind of make you do that double or triple take and say, wait a second. So they're, they're, you know, the chopped and screwed version of I got five on it. Right. Which was amazing. That was one of the best. And also the score of this film is one of the best scores of the year. Mm. Um, I I don't think it was nominated for an Oscar, which I think is, is robbery, but the score is haunting it. The score is black. It's African, but it also incorporates those elements of horror. Now, we have to talk about this from the standpoint of what the film is trying to say, which is a little bit more convoluted than Get Out. But if you think about the, the, core, the core point and theme is that the enemy is really us. Hmm. The enemy is us. It's not anyone or anything else, but that the thing we fear the most is us. And that, I think, has so many contours and layers and so many applications as well. Um, I have to also talk about the performances. Huh. Peter Nyong'o, for me personally, probably the best performance I've seen all year, I think. I mean, playing two different incredible. characters. It was incredible. Uh, Winston Duke was hilarious <laughs> in that film. Yes, that was a great uh, cast. The children, I, they, I don't know their names off the top of my head, but the children were phenomenal. And there were moments in that film that I thought were tremendous social commentary on our general fear, right? And our general fear on two different levels. Our fear is that someone else is coming. Hmm. But then the also the fear, which I think is simultaneous to someone else is coming, is in parallel, I should say, is we're going to be found out. Hmm. And I think that really summarizes a lot of the fear as it relates to immigration and xenophobia in the American context, which is this fear that someone is coming and that there's a reckoning that they're coming, that they're bringing not, there is a fear that they're bringing vengeance, but then also the fear also is that they're bringing justice because they're justified for coming. Wow. And, and it took me a while to kind of process us there's a racial commentary in there too. You could extrapolate, 100%. right? Like 100%. of of the fears of white people that they have of black people that one day they're going to come 
and accuse us and be right yeah. and enact justice upon us mm-hmm. and and essentially treat us the way we've treated them. Exactly. That, yeah. That's that's a latent fear. Right. Right. But then also that they would be justified right. in doing so. Yes. Yes. And so us to me, there it's 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 one of those movies that you can kind of take from it what you will. Yes. There are a lot of different Yes. So that was my thing with the films was it was so open ended, it was hard to have a discussion on it. Mm-hmm. So so um uh it just and 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 Jordan Peele deliberately didn't insert like here's the meaning right or even really a strong direction for it yeah, right yeah. he's like no I, I want people to 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 think about it wrestle with it and whatnot I think what it did well was showcase that he is a horror film nerd mm-hmm. like he sure. totally like folks I don't think realize like he loves this as mm-hmm. an art form and is a student of it. In terms yes. of cinematography, right, and and film history, so so that really came out. The risk with it, when you're releasing a Hollywood yeah. film, is that it goes over people's heads, mm-hmm. and that's what I think it did. In contrast to his first mm-hmm. movie, which because race is, is a lot more sort of, as much as we get wrong about it, it's still a lot more intelligible as a topic of conversation. Yeah, it is a risk, but I think it's only a risk for certain filmmakers. Because we're we're saying it's a risk, quote unquote, because it's not. It's Jordan Peele. It's a black filmmaker. You, you take, for example, someone like I think it's I think his name is Ari Aster. And he he made Hereditary, Midsommar, some of these other horror films that are also psychological horror films. No one's saying this about him. They may say they don't understand it, but there's this there's still this sense that every every time we get up and we we're going to talk about this. Later on in this season, <laughs> later on this year, <laughs> there's this sense that every time black people stand up and perform in any capacity, we have to kill it. And we ha- it has to have universal approval for us to maintain our position on that platform. And I think Jordan Peele set the bar so high for himself that now everyone's saying, well, you got it. You got to do it again. It's the next. It's the next. Get out. It's the next. This and it's like he has full freedom to to make whatever movie he wants to make in whatever type type and style of genre he wants to make it. And I think he pushed us in a way that was so good because he didn't do what we expected him to do. He he took creative license. He didn't take the the crowd pleasing easy way out, and that's that risk. And also incorporating some of the best actors, black actors we have today in that risk was something I respected. That's what I enjoyed about us. Now, we can quibble about whether or not it's, it's as good as Get Out, which I don't think that it is. But, you know, I I, I don't know. It's, 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 just, it's so different. I mean, it's, it's hard to compare them. Right? I just think when you are a student of any subject or discipline and you are that adept with the content... It's hard to put out something for a popular audience I, I and not you. leave them behind. I feel you. So no, I, feel, I, felt, I felt left behind. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, left out of what he was trying to do, which was, I think, really smart and important. Okay. And so how do you... And, and if he had done this as like an independent film or yeah. something like that, where he's like, this is about the art, 
you can get it or not, whatever. Mm -hmm. But this was released as a Hollywood blockbuster film and billed as Jordan Peele, you know, the the next film. I, that's, right? I like that. I like that's that. That's great. That's I great. I mean, Kendrick, this, that's how I feel about Kendrick Lamar. Like, Kendrick Lamar doesn't give you a straightforward rap album every single time, right? Like, there's, there's, there's space and room within it, right? There's space and room for you to interpret. Anyway, so I know we're spending how long. <laughs> it's, spending it's a, really so good, it's a bigger this. conversation about um, um, black artists yeah. and the standards we hold them to. And I think also this is a film that lends itself to repeat viewing. So I think it yeah, lends itself for, for us sure. to watch it multiple times. And that's more of a discipline and a push than what most of us would would do. Okay, anyway, number eight. All right, this is going to be um, fast because it's relatively predictable. Impeachment. Okay. So, yeah. again, sticking with the politics thing. Um, I think it's significant not because the president is likely to be impeached. In fact, it's highly likely he will not be impeached because there's a Republican majority in the Senate and you have to have two-thirds vote in order to support impeachment. So you just don't have the numbers mm -hmm. and people are really falling hard along partisan lines. But it's significant because it's the only he's only the third president in history to be impeached. Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, and now Donald Trump. So for all the reasons we're going to look back should <laughs> should the Lord Terry and 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 look uh <laughs> sure. at our history in this moment one of the things that's going to stand out most is that this was a president who was impeached yeah. which is significant right that means enough members of congress and with broad support from a a big part of the populace over half uh, thought that he conducted himself in a way that warrants a trial and possible removal from the right. office. It's also significant because from the day he stepped in office, if not before, really, um, there were questions about his fitness for office. Yeah. Uh, not even just experience, right? Because any president who doesn't have this really long history in politics might get a question about experience. It's about his competence. It's about his motivation, right? Right, right. Um, right. And to this day, <laughs> to this day, he keeps doing stuff. To this day, right? Um, so it's it's massively significant. Again, falls along partisan lines. A Rorschach yes, test for it what does. you believe about government, what you believe about the presidency, separation of powers, the Constitution. So, just from a historian's perspective, right? Like this is going to be one of those top three bullet points that you remember about the yeah. Trump presidency. He was impeached. Yeah, you can you can never take that away. Yeah, he was impeached. Okay. Um, I think that's pretty self-evident. I'm tired of talking about uh, 45. <laughs> anyway, uh, number eight here. We're almost done. But number eight had to give a shout out to this TV series, The Watchmen. Okay. I haven't seen it. Oh, oh, man. Um, it is so crucial. I saw people rave about it. What it was is so crucial, it? first of all, that I don't give any spoilers. And I am not going to give spoilers. It's so crucial for me not to. But Watchmen was not what I expected. And here's why this was so interesting. Watchmen, when it was first, when it was first discussed that HBO was doing a series, a television series, everyone was excited. All the comic nerds, graphic nerds, we were all excited, right? But when when details started to leak about what that was, right, that the premise was there were the police officers were being attacked. And that police officers would have to walk around in disguise, basically. The question that everyone asked Damon Lindelof, and the question that you're probably asking yourself right now, is why is that relevant? Like, why are you making 
police officers and law enforcement the victims here, especially in this time, right? You know, it's just a it's just an honest question. And Damon Lindelof responds with an answer that at the time made so many of us angry and so many of us pessimistic and cynical about the series. He said, I think you need to watch the show. Just wait till everything comes out. And I remember I said, come on, man. Like, this is a cop out. This is going to be trash. Oh, boy, was I wrong. It is absolutely 1,000% one of the most, how do I say this? One of the most historically educational and risky black art pieces <laughs> I have seen ever. It takes some things about the original. If you don't know, the original um, graphic novel is called The Watchmen, written it's by Marvel. Alan Moore. Uh, no, it is it is not Marvel. <laughs> um, and Watchmen dudes, is Bo and Tyler are laughing. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Look, man, so Watchmen... like it was in the, like it was off the wall assertion. But go on, go on, nah, go on. So Watchmen is totally Watchmen is basically a commentary about the. It's a very human look at superheroes, but it's also kind of in some ways a critique of superheroes as a genre, as a movement. So it's it's a superhero critique of superheroes. And so it basically reveals the underbelly of what it means to be a superhero, but also challenges the kind of current modern concepts of, um, you know, kind of the superhero fandom and why we make fans out of our heroes, um, why we become fans of our heroes. Now, back in the day when Watchmen came out, the whole concept and mentality was critiquing like Cold War and, you know, it, it, it was all based upon the realm of culture that we were in, which was all about kind of this, you know, standoff with Russia and war and, and, and you know, the degradation of culture. But this, how do I say it without spoiling it? It is all about black history. I remember people talking about the first episode in this massive yes. historic event yes. in Black history. Absolutely, yes. And I was like, I gotta, but I got to subscribe to HBO to get it, right? I got you for the credits. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, it, it, it is. And, and that is obviously, it's, it's out now. So, you know, talking about Black Wall Street is the first, I think, dramatic portrayal of Black Wall Street I've ever seen. And it, it, a lot of people didn't even know what it was. It is... Absolutely phenomenal. And I will say this, that the season finale, there were two scenes in the season finale that absolutely shattered me emotionally. Oh, boy. I mean, wrecked me emotionally. I mean, I cannot, of all, there was, there's, there's episode four of When They See Us. There is that one scene in Parasite. And then there is this scene. Oh my god! I wish I could. T- oh my gosh! I wish I could. T- we might need to do something for the patrons where I can talk about this. <laughs> but I wish I. I wish I could talk about this scene because it wrecked the life out of me. And then the the next scene in that uh, season finale, where I'll just say that one of the characters mentions to another character, "Wounds need air." My my my. I said, "My God!" If that don't preach, yep. Wounds. Need air. Yep. Oh my goodness. Whoo, Watchmen. It was, it was, we weren't expecting it. 
and it's the perfect one. You know how sometimes you anticipate something? Uh-huh. It came out of left field yeah. and it captured us and it brought back that instant. I, you got to watch. You have to watch Watchmen the night of. Do you know the credits? Who, film director, producer? Damon Lindelof. Okay, yeah, Damon you. Lindelof, um, who is also obviously known for Lost and The Leftovers, um, two very popular kind of sci-fi shows. Uh, but Regina King is phenomenal in this. Regina King has been killing it. Regina Bing King. Man, give her her flowers. <laughs> Come you know, on, man. Anyway, I can talk amazing. about Watchmen yes. so much, man. So much black history. Oh, you guys, you got to see Watchmen. You got to see it. Now, it's an HBO show, so be prepared for that. But you got to see Watchmen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I think this is the last one, right? Number, number nine. nine. Okay. Number nine. Feeling fine. Uh, unfortunately, it's kind of a downer, but you know, depending on how you look at it, you, it could be bittersweet. So my last cultural artifact is the death of Toni Morrison. Mm. Happened in August of 2019. Toni Morrison, oh, one of our brightest literary lights and just brilliant thinkers all around. Memory eternal. Oh, um. God. Some people have called her a literary mother. She um, was the first black woman to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature for her book, Beloved. She was afforded, um, awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian honor given to anyone, and was just a cultural treasure. And so her novels and just her way of being, what I appreciated so much about it, and unfortunately not until later in my life and and toward the end of her life was how unapologetically black she was mm-hmm. and how yes. unapologetically yes. black centered she was. And so when she starts writing for broad audiences back in the 1970s, I think mm-hmm. she's in an environment where people are telling her, you can't sell books if they don't talk about white people, hmm. even if they're yeah. books with black characters main characters somehow you have to pull in white readers by talking about white people and she says i'm not going to do that i'm going to tell our stories from our perspective and Mm -hmm. it's going to i'm going to tell it regardless of whether white people read it or not and i'm not going to change my style for that so i think it mirrors a lot of what we're trying to do with pass the mic with the witness is is be black centered basically saying our entire existence is not simply or merely in reference to white people or whiteness, that we are our own agents, right? Yeah. And we write our own history and we write our own stories. And so Toni Morrison, um, she was also an editor in addition yeah. to being an author. Yeah. So she saw good writing and coached writers to be great. It, she just has an amazing story. And yeah. she was a teacher. She loved sharing and imparting <laughs> her in. Your her her vast wisdom and genius to other people. Jesus, man, this is so good. Favorite Toni Morrison book? I mean, I was just low hanging fruit is beloved. Yeah, that's the first one I read. So Song Solomon, man. Yeah. Ugh. Memory eternal, man. We lost when we lost Toni Morrison. That was a moment. That was a moment. Yeah, that was a moment, man. You talk about writing. Ooh. Talk about somebody who just James loves. Baldwin, Toni Morrison. Ooh. That's it right there. That's two of the Mount Rushmore for me. Right. All right. My number nine as we close it out. Um, yeah. And, and so it's interesting you talk about being, you know, an author because that's, you know, my last one is a book and it's the best book I read in 2019. Uh, the Color of Compromise. Are you kidding me? I yeah. seriously was not expecting that. Absolutely. It's The Color of Compromise. And I know that's that seems to be extremely 
hokey. And, you know, of course, that's your co-host. Let me tell you something. Color Compromise is one of the most important books of the decade. It is one of the most important books for the future of the church. And it is a book that will be read by my kids and my children's children and for generations to come because it perfectly summarizes the complicity of the American church in racism. And if you have not read this book, I know you, you're, you're thinking, I, I listen to footnotes. I listen to past the mic. I read his articles. I follow him on Twitter. And you're thinking that's sufficient, right? I know how we do. Okay. We, we half read books. We skim books, sit down with the color of compromise and read the book. Mm. If you read the book, the principles of the book, the little touches that Jamar puts on these very important historical moments for the church, for our country, and for our culture are 1,000% soul-shaking, inspiring. And I'm going to tell you, I cannot tell you how many times I've referenced the book. Cannot tell you how many times I've recommended the book. Cannot tell you how many people have said, Every time, it's always the same. I can't read it quickly. Can't read the book quickly. I remember you sent me the manuscript. You was like, hey, yo, read this. Give me feedback. I'm like, bro, I don't know what to say. (laughs) Like, I was like, uh, what do I say? Like, I remember you asked me. I was like, uh, because it it shook me. Um, The principle of contingency, uh, it didn't have to be this way. It didn't. Bro, color compromise. No doubt. You want to talk about ripples? I mean, how many books of the year? How many, how many, how many five-star reviews? How many historical societies saying it's amazing? How many, how many people are reading it? How many people are sharing it? How many Amazon reviews? I mean, mm. come on. This is the most important book for the church in 2019. And anybody saying it's not, I love you, but you're wrong. <laughs> I love you. It's all love. That was Tyler it's, Burns, ladies and gentlemen. It's all love. Get it right. It's all love, but this is the book of the year. Man, I appreciate that. I seriously was not expecting you to say that, nor was I expecting the book to get the response that it has. We, we can talk about it more later in the season, but it means a lot to me. And um, for everybody who has read it, reviewed it, recommended it, engaged it, Thank you so much. It's really been an honor to just witness this. No, you need, bro, you need to tell them about the video study and the, you know, the joint. This, we got a video study for your church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is amazing. And so, so yeah, a DVD video study came out. Uh, so it's 11 episodes, all about 20 minutes each. I'm talking to you, but there's also some great editing in there. So you're going to get mm-hmm. some, uh, archival footage yes. and and pictures to to sort of augment and go along with it. Uh, it. It's just a really great way to engage in the book if you want to do it for a small group or a book study or something like that. It's also going to be available for streaming by the time mm-hmm. you listen to this episode. Amazing. So wherever uh, streaming videos are sold, you should be able to get that or check our social media links. Awesome, man. I'm so glad I was able to, to talk about the color and compromise, man. I'm excited. This is a great list. This is two great this lists. This is an man. incredible list. And okay. we have so many that like honorable yeah. mentions. Do you, any honorable mentions oh, you yeah, want yeah, yeah. to throw um, out? Just real quick, rapid me, fire. Uh, honorable mentions. So some of these are internal, right? Like okay. it was a big year for The Witness. We had the Joy and Justice Conference. Of course. Like that's why I expected you to talk about <laughs> right. it. Uh, we had the Witness Foundation announcement. Yes, yes. Um, I wanted to mention the Democratic primaries and the fact that people of color had to be the ones who dropped out 
almost first, yeah, right? Yeah. And what that says about oh, our we gonna political get into practice. That. We yeah. gonna get into that. So yeah, a, a couple for me. Joy and Justice Conference was right there. Um, the, the one that I cut last minute that was really difficult. Um, Nipsey Hussle. That was really hard mm-hmm. for me to cut. Um, and it wasn't because I don't think he deserves it. It was just some other things just really resonated with me. Yeah. Um, Knives Out, the movie, uh, <laughs> Surviving R. Kelly. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Succession season two. And then one that I really liked that I, I, I hate I didn't get a chance to talk about this more, but you know, t- cuts are tough. And that is the um, reality series, Rhythm and Flow. I knew you were going to say that. Oh, I knew you were so going to say that. Good. We should watch it's that together. It's the hip hop American hilarious. Idol. Yes. You, you would really like it. I saw it, um, and uh, it's just great music. It's and it's really unapologetically black. Um, so I I love that. So man, it's been a great year, and now we're able to focus fully on 2020. These were our top nine cultural artifacts of 2019. But we want you to reach out to us at underscore past the mic and also at the witness BCC or at Burns23, at Jamar Tisby, and give your reactions. What are some things that you're shocked didn't make our list or our honorable mentions? And also, was there anything that you feel also resonated with you that we mentioned? So we hope you guys are excited about 2020. We got season one of the podcast coming out next week. So stay tuned right here at Pass the Mic. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.